thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Zan Raza, and today we'll be talking to award-winning documentary filmmaker, journalist, and the founder of TheAnalysis.News, Paul Jay. Paul, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much, Zan. Let us begin this, this segment with Ukraine. Uh, when the war started, the initial goals of Russia was denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine so that it poses no existential threat to the state of Russia. What do you think about this justification? Are you convinced? And um, let's just start with there. Okay, well, well, let me just say clearly, I think the objective of denazification was nonsense. If you want to denazify, start with your own country. There's lots of Nazis and racists and uh, Russian uh, horrible nationalists, including the Russian Orthodox Church, even the Russian Communist Party, and of course Putin's party. Um, there was no existential threat to Russia. The whole thing was a concoction. Uh, Ukraine was never going to be a member of NATO. It was very clear there was no consensus in NATO to allow it into NATO. Uh, there's already Estonia, which is on NATO, Russia's border, which is a member of NATO. So if being in NATO makes a country an existential threat, then there already is one. Uh, there was no one about to invade Russia. It, the fundamental principle is you do not have a right to invade another country unless you are under imminent threat and your invasion will prevent the imminent threat. There was no imminent threat to Russia, period. Uh, that's international law. And if it, 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 if it is an invasion that isn't based on imminent threat, then it's a war of aggression, which is by the Nuremberg trials and, and international law considered one of the, the highest crime a state can commit. It's why states always concoct threats, as the United States did in Iraq. You know, they concocted weapons of mass destruction to create an argument about imminent threat, even though everyone on earth knew it was bullshit. Uh, every state, including Hitler, Hitler created excuses for invasions. Uh, nobody invades without an excuse. Uh, there was no existential threat. If anything, the invasion of Ukraine has created a threat. Uh, if the objective was, you know, to stop uh, NATO, uh, the invasion simply strengthened NATO. You know, it's added, uh, what, Finland and... Uh, another long, long border uh, with Russia. So, you know, instead of now, uh, you know, having just Estonia, and uh, you know, now they've got Finland's going to be NATO with an enormous border with Russia. So, so it's a ridiculous uh, notion that this was a, a war of self-defense. Um, but let's step back. Second, let me let me just ask, play devil's advocate on the denazification part before we take a step back. And um, so um, we do know that Congress, uh, U.S. Congress passed a law which listed uh, the Azov Battalion and thousands of soldiers or armed personnel were part of the Azov Battalion, which is part of the Ukraine Armed Forces. Uh, and the law that they passed was basically ban any arms sales to them. And we do know that Stefan Bandera, um, there's a lot of people that joined around him. So how can you not see that Ukraine had a Nazi problem, uh, especially also given... Never, I never said that. 
Okay, let me rephrase that. How could you not see that the Russian justification had some premise at least uh, to address that? They have no right to go denazify anybody. They only have a right to defend if they are under imminent threat. Full stop. Of course, there's a significant uh, Nazi presence in the Ukraine. And the, and the Ukrainian oligarchy are rotten to the core. Uh, the only issue with the Ukrainian oligarchy is some of them want to be pro-West. Some of the Ukrainian oligarchy, although they're greatly weakened, wanted to be part of the Russian sphere. Uh, they're corrupt from beginning to end. But so is the Russian oligarchy. So is the American oligarchy. So is the Canadian oligarchy. We're dealing with a system of global capitalism, a system of global imperialism. It has many faces. The most dominant face, without any question, is the American face and its allies. No form of imperialism has more blood on its hands than the Americans do. But look at the situation in the lead up to World War II. You know, up until the late 30s, you know, right up until the beginning of, you know, Hitler's in invasions, uh, you know, in Poland and such, the greatest war criminal on the planet was not Hitler. It was the British Empire. No one on earth, I think, maybe ever has killed as many people as the British Empire. I know one Indian historian estimated over you know, the 300 plus years of the British Empire, they may have killed directly or indirectly, you know, indirectly meaning deliberately created famines, maybe 1.5 billion people. You know, Hitler's worst crimes don't rise to the level of the British Empire. But does that mean the people of the world didn't need to fight against Hitler? Because the Hitler form of imperialism at that time of history was the greatest danger, certainly to the European peoples, to the Soviets, to the British, because the issue is the peoples. The elites are the ones responsible for the British Empire. The elites are the ones responsible for global, they're the ones that benefit from global imperialism. There's no good guys in the Ukrainian conflict except for one, and that's the Ukrainian people who have been invaded and are getting killed in their hundreds of thousands. Other victims include Russian soldiers who are being marched to war to benefit the Russian oligarchy, not the Russian people. The Russian people don't gain anything out of this war. So, 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 so I just want to say, just to make really drive home this point, our enemy is global imperialism, global capitalism, but at different points of time, one is more aggressive, and we do need to stand up for international law, even though, of course, there's no one on earth that can make the Americans uh, come under international law, but at least there's some pretense. But if we as progressives don't fight against wars of aggression, no matter who it is, then who the hell is going to stand up for any kind of principles? I wanted to touch upon the second point about demilitarization. Um, there is, Moscow has been voicing concerns um, since at least uh, when Putin has come into power. Even William Burns, uh, the 
uh, who is the current CIA director who was stationed in Moscow, a WikiLeaks document reveals that, I'm paraphrasing here, that um, Ukraine is a very sensitive issue and if we keep on uh, peddling this line of NATO, uh, then there, a civil war will break out and Russia will be forced to intervene. The planners of Washington apparently recognize that. Um, we saw also that NATO offered Ukraine in April 2018, uh, 2000, 2008, sorry, uh, John Mersheimer talked about this, that uh, NATO offered Ukraine to become of NATO. And then we saw the US getting involved in 2014 with its uh, CIA-backed coup and supporting right-wing forces. And then we're even as late as of December 2021, uh, Russia was asking for reassurances about Biden rejecting NATO, but no response was given by Washington. At what point does it become um, justifiable that poking NATO in your nose, and we know NATO's not had a pretty, uh, defensive history. It's been, if anything, according to Noam Chomsky, an offensive force led by a rogue state in the United States. Don't you think there's any sort of justification or any sort of legitimate legitimization when Ukraine uh, openly uh, uh, invites NATO and asks it to station its military equipment and starts to become part of that alliance. Don't you think it poses any sort of existential threat to the Russians? No, none. There's not a single piece of evidence of it. As I said, there's already NATO states on the border of Russia. NATO has no plans to invade Russia. There's no imminent threat to Russia. Most of the arming of Ukraine prior to the Russian invasion was domestic Ukrainian produced arms. The, the big shipments of US arms didn't come until just before and mostly after the Russian invasion. Ukraine was one of the largest arms exporters in the world. They were in the top 10, nine or 10 of the, in the biggest arms exporters up until about 2018. After 2018, they dropped out of the top 10. Why? Because they kept, they were building arms for their own army. They were doing domestic uh, military production. They have a right to do that. There was no, they were not going to invade Russia. They have a right to build up their arms. I hate the Ukrainian oligarchy every bit as much as I hate the Russian oligarchy and all the other oligarchies, including the Canadian where I happen to be right now. They're all part of the same global monopoly capitalist imperialist system. They all rotten to the core and none of them care how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people die. Yes, the Americans tried to provoke this, no doubt. Uh, the, the, the even entertaining the idea of Ukraine in NATO, when they knew it couldn't be done, when the Americans knew that there was no way they would get consensus to have Ukraine in NATO, they kept talking about it anyway. Same thing goes for the Ukrainian olig oligarchy. There were Ukrainians prior to the invasion screaming at Zelensky, take NATO off the table, declare the obvious, withdraw any application to NATO. And he wouldn't do it. Why? Because he represents sections of the Ukrainian oligarchy that knew they're going to make money out of all this arms coming into Ukraine. Zelensky could have, maybe, I can't guarantee this because it's not the only factor, but if Zelensky had simply declared Ukraine will never join NATO, and at least in terms of Russian public opinion, 
would have made a big difference. Now, I don't know. I don't even think that's why Putin invaded. I don't think there's any real threat from NATO. I think it's more a propaganda exercise. Uh, but it's an important piece of the Russian nationalist narrative domestically that NATO's a threat. The same way for the Americans. For decades and decades, the Americans were talking about the Soviet threat. They're going to come bomb us. They're, the Russians are coming. It was all bullshit. The Soviets were never a threat to the United States, not for a single day. But it was a critical piece of American nationalist narrative. The same way it is in Russia. How, do you, how does Putin justify, outside of the major cities of Russia, poverty is terrible. Uh, education, healthcare, everything is terrible. It's at the, you know, at the worst standards. Now, you know, Moscow itself is, is I think, was one of the third or fourth wealthiest city in the world, but not in the countryside. So how do you justify such a massive military, uh, military industrial complex in Russia without a serious external threat? And of course, the same game is played by the Americans. Russia is no threat uh, to NATO countries. It's no threat to Western Europe. It's total nonsense that Russia forms some kind of existential enemy, but it justifies, you know, even a more massive military expenditure by the Americans. It's a morbid dance of death. Both powers have military industrial complexes. Both profit from all this. They, then they, of course, stepping back a bit. Yes, the Americans want to be the global hegemon. And that means you gotta be the hegemon in every region. You can't be you know, a global hegemon in the abstract. You gotta be a hegemon in Europe. You gotta be a hegemon in Asia. You got to be hegemon everywhere or you ain't the global hegemon. So why didn't the, the real question comes down to why didn't they allow after the fall of the Soviet Union, why didn't they seriously incorporate Russia into Western capitalism? Some attempts, some moves, but two things. One, they couldn't seize the, the uh, Russian banking system, the Russian oligarchs who a lot, lot came out of the Russian Communist Party, they grabbed the assets. And, and the Americans couldn't just come and scoop everything for themselves. Second thing, once you have an independent, rising capitalist Russia, if it was in Europe, because of the size of the population, the education, the uh, the history of a manufa uh, sophisticated manufacturing and military uh, productive base, Russia in a Europe would contend with Germany for what would be the leading power of Europe. And imagine if there'd been a German-Russian uh, alliance of some kind within that Europe, where would the Americans be? So of course, from you know very early on, because they want to be the global imperialism, the global hegemon. They did everything they could to make sure Russia didn't integrate into Europe, certainly not into NATO, even though there was even talk about that, although it's so ridiculous. What the, what the hell's the point of NATO with a Russia in it? Although, let's put that aside, because your reference to Chomsky is correct. NATO's, I, I don't know if I would call NATO so much an aggressive alliance as it is an alliance to maintain the American hegemony in Europe.
and suppress socialism. That's maybe even the most important part. And, you know, the history of NATO and, and American coordination in Western Europe is to make sure that post-war uh, Europe, the socialist and communist power, parties didn't come to power because there was enormous enthusiasm for socialism in Europe after World War II. And, you know, they support the dictators in Greece and they support uh, Franco in Spain. I mean, all this bullshit of NATO as a defense of democracy, it's quite the opposite. NATO was a defense of various forms of fascism in Europe. Um, and, 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 and the NATO alliance now is, you know, perhaps its most important part is to make sure Europe stays within the Western American sphere of arms sales. And, and that's, a, you know, what is the Ukraine war really about? Let's jump to that now. One. Keep Russia weak so it can't contend in Europe. Two, keep Ukraine within a Western sphere of capitalism rather than a Russian sphere of capitalism. That's the fight. And Russia has no right to invade Ukraine to keep Ukraine in a Russian sphere of capitalism any more than America has a United States has a right to invade somewhere which they do all the time, of course. But the bottom line here is the Ukrainian people are getting slaughtered. And we should defend, we should, you know, defend their right to defend themselves. No, you make a good point about uh, when, you, when you look at the people suffering, I think this is the first and foremost thing um, as progressive is to support the people that are suffering, whether it's the Russian soldiers or whether it's the Ukrainian people. These are young people, they're not, Uh, some intellectuals fighting on ground or politicians. We're talking about young as up to 18 to uh, 23 years old. Um, but we have to also analyze and find out the reasons of why certain states act in a certain way. We Like trying to compare the Iraq war, um, I think uh, where the U.S. lied about weapons of mass destruction, which was an open lie. Even uh, George Bush had a recent Freudian slip where he said... Uh, Uh, when he was trying to talk about uh, Putin starting an illegal war in, uh, 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 in Ukraine, he by mistake he said Iraq. Um, I try to play that clip in uh, right after this. And the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> When we look at the history of the United States since the 90s, uh, beginning 2000s, we saw them um, throwing out uh, important arms control treaties. Look at the IBM, IBM Treaty, ICBM Treaty, 2003, uh, Open Skies Treaty, INF Treaty, Star, Star Treaties now being put in question. And one has to ask themselves is if uh, it locates itself in Ukraine, then putting it throwing out all these treaties, it gives uh, Ukraine and NATO um, military advantage. For example, missiles can be... What, what, what? No, that's nonsense. You can throw a missile from Poland just as easily as Ukraine. Makes no difference. But, you know, Ukraine... I interviewed Daniel Ellsberg, who's a real expert on these issues. It's, he says it's complete nonsense that there's some strategic advantage of being in Ukraine versus Estonia, which is closer to Moscow or Poland, you know, if you're going to, there's no, there's no attack coming on Russia anyway. The whole thing's nonsense. You think they're going to start a nuclear war? No, I, I think it, I don't think it was about uh, 
attacking Russia from there, but I think it was expanding even further despite all the promises made. Like at some point, uh, for example, you and I know what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, when Russia was even thinking about stationing there. I mean, obviously Cuba was not going to invade the United States. We both know that. But it was from the perspective of the planners of Washington, it was just to have that as uh, leverage in dip diplomatic talks on uh, in the international level, it was something that the U.S. couldn't fathom. And so, what my point? Well, actually, actually, watch watch my interview with Ellsberg on this point. We'll link that in the thing. But from my point is, just having that perception or having that uh, thing is what Russian elites probably got scared of. Is like this is the limit to where you encroach into our hemisphere. And therefore, we need to now intervene. I'm not trying to justify them. Don't you think the way we've seen nation states act, I'm not saying they've acted the right way, but realpolitik is conducted this way, that you just can't go into Canada and station and make a military alliance with them when the United States is across borders. Don't you think this is for the United States, NATO and Ukraine to go that far and even entertaining talks and Zelensky was saying I think a week before the invasion he was saying that we are now gonna throw away the agreement that we have with Russia about our neutrality don't you think that there's at some point uh, a line that uh, one crosses that justifies in the eyes of the Russian elite that's about it we're going in now and Obviously, there was a line because they did it, but that doesn't mean it isn't a complete violation of international law. It's not a war of aggression. The American blockade of Cuba was illegal, unjustified. There was no threat to the United States by even nuclear weapons in Cuba. It was all BS, and they knew it. There's a quote from McNamara uh, where he says, and he said it later publicly, but it, at the time he said it privately, but it's been recorded in both ways, that there was no threat from the from the nuclear weapons in Cuba to the United States. It was a political threat to the Kennedy administration to look weak in the because the Republicans were hammering Kennedy, and so was the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They wanted an invasion of Cuba, and they were furious uh, that Kennedy wasn't, quote unquote, standing up to the Russians enough. And the Kennedys certainly played with the idea of invading Cuba and had full-scale plans for the invasion of Cuba. But there was no military strategic threat from Cuba to the United States. Why? Because nothing changed. There were already Russian submarines that had weapon, nuclear weapons that could have taken out Washington, New York, anytime they wanted to. Having these weapons in Cuba changed nothing. So, as McNamara says, this isn't a strategic military threat to the United States. This is a political threat to the Kennedy administration, meaning a domestic political problem. And the blockade was to deal with that. In other words, to avoid the look of humiliation, I'm quoting Ellsberg now, for Kennedy not to look humiliated because these things went into Cuba even after Khrushchev said he wasn't going to. They were willing to risk nuclear war with the blockade. It's, it's beyond insanity. For domestic politics, they were willing to risk nuclear war. 
So it's the same story going on here in Ukraine. There was no imminent threat to Russia, but because of Russian domestic politics, you know, Putin's party did very badly in the in the last elections. Uh, there's a, the, the, as I said, outside of some of the major, two or three of the major cities, the situation for people is terrible. The disillusionment, the disenchantment with the Russian oligarchy is very profound. And the way the Americans fight this in the United States and the way the, America, the Russians fight it, and you can add many, many countries, is nationalism. You know, you distract people with, with a good war. You make money out of the war, and and certainly Putin and the Russians never expected this to go on this long. I think he's even admitted it now. They thought it'd be another Crimea. Do you think if NATO was off the table, uh, according to what I've heard from you, Russia would have still invaded Ukraine? I don't know the answer. I know there were strong domestic things driving this. Uh, Donbass is a very wealthy, industrialized area, at least it was before the war, um, it's a prize. Um, the Ukrainian oligarchy, as I said, was, was split. The eastern, the part of the oligarchy that really was rooted in, in the industrial areas of Donbass and very much depended on cheap energy from Russia, um, they wanted to maintain this kind of Russian alliance. So, and of course, the Russian oligarchy wanted this within the sphere of Russian capitalism more so than Western. Um, the the vulnerability, uh, disenchantment, as I say, with the Putin administration. Uh, you know, you talk. You know, I interviewed Boris Kargalitsky. I'm not sure if you have yet, but he's you know he's very clear, and so are others. The pe the Russian people were very uh, furious at the Russian oligarchy for the incredible uh, gap between the, the rich and the poor. Uh, the, you know, you see these uh, Russian people saw the Russian oligarchs with their ridiculous yachts and lifestyle and, and investments. The wealth that was in the hands of this little circle of oligarchs, people were furious at that. And yeah, Putin did step on some of the oligarchs, but any oligarchs that were loyal to the Russian state and didn't get involved in politics, they continued making ridiculous amounts of money. So there's a lot of domestic reasons why this war took place. Um, yes, they thought it would be an easy cakewalk. Uh, I don't know why, I guess because of Crimea. They never expected this long drawn out thing. But if NATO had been taken off the table, in terms of Russian public opinion, it would have won. It would have looked like a win for Putin. It would have gotten rid of any excuse of NATO. And, and, that, and while I'd say it wasn't objectively a threat, subjectively, it felt like one. And, and what you, the way you framed it earlier, I think it's true in a sense, in terms of the perception you know, you're already screwed with us in 2014 in Ukraine. We had a pro, we had a, you know, a president there who tried to make a deal with the EU and didn't like the deal. And, you know, Ukraine was gravitating more to our Russian sphere. And I don't, you know, this was a popular revolt in 2014, hijacked by the far right, backed by 
the U.S. Embassy. It's not as simple as just some American organized coup, but it's, it's a factor there for sure. And yeah, that pissed the Russians off. You're playing in our backyard and you're manipulating Ukrainian politics, you know, in our next door neighbor, many of whom are Russian speaking. In fact, what is it? I think the majority of the Ukrainian army speaks Russian. I mean, the whole ethnic situation is very complicated in Ukraine. It's not like, you know, you got all Ukrainian speakers fighting Russian speakers. It's all mixed up. Uh, and even in Donbass, uh, uh, when the 2014 coup took place uh, in Donbass, uh, when they created these independent autonomous areas, uh, they uh, they weren't looking to join Russia. They wanted some kind of, you know, I'm in Canada right now. They wanted some kind of Quebec-style federalism where there was autonomy and they had the, you know, rights to defend their language and culture. And and it was had a, quite a progressive leadership, as I've been told, in the early stages. Uh, but that's all a Ukrainian domestic affair, first of all. Um, and none of that complicated Ukrainian situation, including the Nazis who are there and, and have undue influence, certainly did. I'm not so sure they still do, actually, but they certainly did. Uh, none of that justifies the killing of hundreds of thousands of people. We got to keep putting at the center of this conversation the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people. Because this conversation gets into the realm of being a sociopath. The number of people that are talking about this is if they're playing a board game. You know, they're back to Brzezinski's chessboard. No, this isn't a goddamn board game. This is hundreds of thousands of people being slaughtered for bullshit. So let us talk about solutions. Um, what do you think would be the approach to get out of this crisis. Uh, we saw that the, uh, the NATO countries like the UK under Boris Johnson derailed uh, certain talks that were gonna take place uh, just before the summers was beginning. Uh, I think there were talks in Istanbul that were uh, set to take place and Boris Johnson, and I'm paraphrasing here, said the West is ready not for it's not ready for peace. We've seen the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, say Uh, Russia has to be ruined. I'm uh, 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 quoting her here. Has to be completely yeah, to the, to the last Ukrainian, right? In a lot of a lot of uh, hawkish talk uh, over these times, and on the other side, we also see um, the political pressure boiling under Putin to make sure that they come out victorious. And now we're here. Um, there has been some rumors that the, the U.S. Uh, military, uh, the Pentagon is split on this issue and that there, since the Poland uh, crisis came where a missile was uh, mistakenly launched or purposely launched, we don't know, launched by the Ukrainians into Poland, that um, that kind of awakened certain military figures in the United States to now start diplomatic initiatives. So if the West pursues diplomatic initiatives, What do you think should be uh, the most important factors? And if we don't pursue peace, what is at stake here? What should we as progressive people demand? Because first of all, we barely get listened to by the people that actually have power. 
the level of the mass movement in all of our countries is rather low in every respect. Uh, it's, it's a whole nother conversation why, but it is. We need a broad international mass anti-war movement. We need a movement against nuclear weapons to mitigate and reduce the threat of nuclear war, which is the number one point of analysis here. How do we avoid nuclear war? We need to start from there. Second point of analysis, how do we get to some effective policy on the climate crisis? Then you start looking at everything else. So I say, when I've interviewed and I talk to Ukrainian friends and I interview Ukrainian left, who are as nationalist and furious with the Russians as almost anybody in Ukraine, who, who some of the leftists are even talking about the necessity of, lib, of you know, liberating even Crimea, which to me is nuts, but anyway, even that, and I've said to them, you know, I'm worried about nuclear war because there won't be a Ukraine if there's nuclear war. I'm worried about the climate crisis because there won't be a Ukraine if we don't, there won't be an anybody. We're, you know, we're looking at the end of organized human society and we've got maybe a decade or less not to cross the 1.5 degree mark, which is kind of already, I, I shouldn't even say that because the way life is going, we are crossing 1.5, we are getting to two. Are we gonna do anything serious, transformative? So we don't head to three and four? Because imagine by 2050, 2060, <clears throat> if we're already into three and four degree warming, say three, even say two, two plus, most, much, most of the Southern Hemisphere becomes unlivable. So where are those tens, hundreds of millions of people going? North. And what are you Europeans? What are us North Americans? What are we going to do? When hundreds of millions of people are heading north and, and they have no choice but to fight for their survival. We're not even talking about that. And I'm talking, you know, so when I say to Ukrainians, yes, you damn well better make a deal. Because even if it offends your national identity, your national sovereignty, yeah, maybe it looks like you're having some gains on the, you know, on the field of battle. One, the sacrifices you're making are for what? And I said this to one of them directly in an interview. Let's say you liberate Donbass. Let's say. For what? So the uh, Ukrainian oligarchs can take power in Donbass again? You're fighting with all your lives, everything you have, and you're just going to hand it all back to the Ukrainian oligarchy. How about you get organized and at some point turn your guns on the Ukrainian oligarchy? Use this moment the way the Soviets did, even though maybe in the end it didn't work out, but still. Use your this moment and overthrow the Ukrainian oligarchy. Declare no NATO. Now, it's easy for me to say sitting here in the comfort of and safety of Toronto. I have no idea if the conditions exist for this in Ukraine. But, you know, ideally, as a progressive, I would love to see this turn into a Ukrainian revolution 
tell the Russians, get the hell out. You want denazification? Great. We want it too, and we'll do it, not you. The Ukrainian people will denazify. We'll get rid of the Ukrainian oligarchs. We'll declare no NATO. And we'll depend, you know, we'll declare neutrality. I mean, that's what I would, you know, as a progressive, that's what I want to see. But none of that happens with the Russians continuing to slaughter people. So the Russians need to get the hell out, go back to the borders as they were, uh, what is it, February 23rd, if I got the date right. Yes, Ukrainians should declare no NATO. The goddamn Americans should declare no NATO, but that's never going to happen, especially with the Republicans from the trolling house. But that doesn't matter. The hawks around Biden are just as bad. Uh, but at least the Ukrainians should say, OK, Zelensky actually even said this once. He said, look, we're never getting in anyway, so we might as well just say so. And then the Americans and whoever else told him to shut up. Uh, I mean, Zelensky and his crowd, you know, he's as an individual, he's played in, you know, a pretty interesting role. You got to give the guy some credit for, uh, you know, the, the way he's acted in both as an actor and as as a leader. But he represents the okay, uh, Ukrainian oligarchy that are making out like thieves, uh, as they are bandits. I mean, these tons of money that are paying for weapons. Uh, most of it, of course, goes to American arms companies who love this and would like it to go on forever. Uh, but uh, I'm sure the you know the Ukrainian oligarchy are getting their taste of all this money. Um, but what should happen? Yeah, immediate ceasefire. Uh, uh, absolute declaration: Ukraine never joins NATO. Back to the 23rd borders. Then UN supervised referendums. Uh, in Donbass, in Crimea, although I have to say, I, I do think, you know, the Russia might win the Crimea referendum because the polling I saw, at least prior to the invasion, uh, Western polling firms said a majority of people of Crimea wanted to be in Russia. I, I've seen no evidence of that anywhere else. It may be, maybe they haven't done the polling, but even in Crimea, Let's, you know, legitimatize it. If the people of Crimea, even after the invasion, if they want to be part of Russia, then great. Have a proper referendum. Let it be so and then let it be done. There needs to be democratic. The will of the Ukrainian people, including, I have to say, uh, just to emphasize it, I think the people of Donbass, especially those areas that declared autonomy and independence, they have a right to self-determination. And so does Crimea. It has a right to self-determination, which the Ukrainian state must recognize, but there needs to be a referendum whether they, how they want to exercise that. Like in Canada, Quebec has a right to self-determination. It's even the Canadian Supreme Court recognized it. And there's what's at least, what is it, three referendums that were very close, but they decided to stay in Canada with very specific rights. So whatever the people want in that region, should have. Uh, and then Putin better deal with his own domestic problems. Now, here's the grave danger. The grave danger is that the hawks in the American foreign policy elite in both parties, they, as I said earlier, they do not rush, want Russia to take up its place 
as a powerful capitalist entity in Europe and, 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 and towards Asia. And they see there may be a possibility here, not just of some kind of defeat in Ukraine, but a fracturing of the whole Russian state. You know, the, it's called the Russian Federation. Well, in that federation are many ethnicities, many, many languages, many uh, places that might want independence from Moscow. And many of these areas are doing terribly within the Russian Federation. You know, Siberia, the poverty in Siberia apparently is terrible. And the climate crisis hit is hitting Siberia in serious ways. Methane is leaking from the ground as the permafrost thaws. Pipelines are starting to crack. I mean, there's a lot of very, very serious problems. And the Americans, some of these hawks see this, oh, let's take advantage of this. Maybe we can break this whole bloody Russian Federation up. And that's where you really start looking at the possibility of nuclear war. Because if Putin's government, if the Russian state, which does seem very centralized around Putin, according to everyone I talk to, if they start seeing the Americans really fishing in domestic Russian troubled waters and really trying to encourage a breakup of the Russian Federation, that starts becoming an existential threat to the Russian state itself. And that is where even the Chinese have said, you better be careful what you wish for. Because if, if the Russian state, Putin, starts seeing their own existence, meaning their own lives at threat, because you know if the Russian Federation looks like it's starting to come apart, then Putin's life might be on the line. And then two, and I read this, this is a very interesting quote from a Chinese publication, Global Times, and a commentary one of their chief people wrote. They said, if, if the Russian people start to see that their own country might be starting to come apart, they may see the Ukraine war as a great patriotic war as was the last World War II, that this no longer becomes, quote unquote, Putin's special military operation. It now becomes a threat to Russians, the whole Russian society. Then Putin might actually have a full-scale Russian support for a massive, much more massive involvement in Ukraine. And that's where uh, I don't think deliberate use of nuclear weapons happens. But the tension gets so high that that missile that landed in Poland, it turned out to be Ukrainian. But what happens the next time some missile goes astray and is on its way into the Russian Federation? And they don't know what kind of missile it is. Let's uh, close this segment here and talk about other issues such as Iran, uh, the case of Julian Assange in another segment. Uh, thank you so much for your time in this segment. Okay, thanks for inviting me. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube, Rumble and Telegram channels so you can watch part two of our discussion with Paul J. And also, don't forget to take part in our current crowdfunding campaign. We need your support in order to continue for 2023. I'm your host Zad Raza. See you guys next time. These are the building blocks that make up our organization and the goals we would like to achieve. 
In order to continue our journalism and realize these values fundamental to our democracy, we need 1,000 supporters in our crowdfunding campaign, donating only 5 euros or dollars per month via Patreon or bank account. Right now, we have only 200 supporters and are not able to take the next step. Our future is in your hands. Strengthen independent journalism and be part of meaningful change.